Hey there, you're dialed into Reboots, featuring stories about people who have been forced to start over, either through their own missteps or through no fault of their own. All walks of life, anonymous or named, high profile or low down, stories with heart, soul, and grit. Because knowing and sharing our stories is essential for living a life of joy, experiencing healthy relationships, and impacting the world around us in a positive way. Now, here's your host, Tracy Winchell. Episode R004 features the story of a dear friend, Ada Floyd. Ada shares a heartbreaking yet redeeming story that involves five children, four pregnancies, three living children, one marriage, and how she found hope in a God she once doubted. We'll talk with Ada about the premature birth of twin boys, Keaton and Caden, at 24 weeks. About how she alternated between doubting God and rejecting God following the loss of Keaton and the fight to bring Caden home from the hospital. She'll tell us why she smashed a vessel, then spent months putting it back together, and how the process helped her find God and light, and hope from such profound darkness. I'm really excited to, uh, to talk to Ada because it's amazing enough that you are as skilled a counselor as you are. But when we unfold your story, it's even more beautiful. And I, I thank you that you're willing to share this with, with our listeners. Absolutely. I'm happy to. Why are you a counselor? Well, it wasn't really my plan. I um, decided whenever I had my first son that maybe I needed a real career. Waitressing wasn't going to be quite enough to support a family. Got married and decided to look at going to college, perhaps for um, nursing. But I didn't just naturally fall into the idea of nursing. It was a result of being the mother of premature twins that led me to think nursing might be a career for me. Maybe I could be a a NICU nurse and take care of other little babies like mine and see what that what that experience would look like uh, as a caregiver and being able to offer the hope as a parent of a NICU child to other parents. 27 days into our NICU journey we lost our first son due to an infection in the lungs and so that kind of altered the story a little. It put a fire in me to um, to really get a career and to focus. And so I decided to start college while I still had a child in the NICU because that's what you do. You overload yourself. That's a, a good plan. And went through my first semester of college and decided, yeah, this nursing thing might be for me. I'd be okay. But I was still in a lot of general classes. And then Due to uh, infection and weak lungs, my other son, Caden, passed away at 20 months of age, and I just had to kind of put the brakes on and shift gears. I kept going to college. I kept going to school because I didn't know what to do with my time. Um, Unstructured time was foreign to me at that point. I'd been uh, the mother of a NICU child for, you know, 20 months, and it included OT and PT and nursing care and... Um, two-hour-long feedings and all of these things that I didn't know how to let go of. 
Um, and school gave me structure. It gave me something to do, homework gave me something to focus on. Um, but I felt very lost and overwhelmed at the idea of trying to stand beside um, a NICU bed. And I had a visualized offering hope to other parents because look at my baby, look how he's grown, look how big he is now. And that wasn't gonna be an option anymore. Um, and I couldn't, I couldn't bear the idea of not being able to share that I was a NICU parent with another parent in that situation. But if I did, I would only be frightening them. If I said, yes, I'm a, I'm a NICU parent, I did this same journey as you. Oh, but wait, look how my story ended. That would, I can only imagine that that would be frightening and overwhelming to a parent in that position. So I couldn't, I couldn't do it. Um, I just had kind of shut that off and was like, there's, and if I'm not going to be a NICU nurse, I'm not going to be a nurse. I just couldn't do it. Um, so then it's, well, now what do I do? I've got student loans. I can't stop now. I've got to, I have to come up with some career field. And I was struck with, well, what else can I do with this story? What else can I do with this huge event that has completely radically changed my life? And counseling came to mind that I could focus on what happens when the story isn't successful, what happens when grief is your story. Um, and so I decided to pursue psychology undergraduate and then furthered that with um, a degree in counseling. And I kind of took a dual route into my master's of vocational rehabilitation coupled with counseling. So it came, kind of put me in a, a unique niche of, of counseling with the ability to work with people with disability because most likely had my son survived, he would have had significant disabilities uh, ongoing because of his health. Um, so it just kind of opened new, new avenues that I had never considered before. Let's, let's spend a little bit more time with what it's like to have a son and then you have preemie twins and that was, that was tough. Yes, very. Um, Jacob was three years old when the twins were born. Um, we actually found out that I was pregnant with twins. We were, we were planning to, to expand our family. We had moved to Oklahoma City um, because Mason, my husband, got a job that it offered insurance. Um, and that's where it was located. And part of the purpose of the job was to have insurance to have maternal care and be able to to have the family grow and so we went uh, with that in mind and so we were all gung-ho set to have another baby and that first ultrasound that showed the two heartbeats was was uh, very exciting a little bit scary I remember a, a funny moment because of when I was pregnant we were just finding out the gender early April so April 1st we called to tell uh, my mother-in-law this was just shy of us finding out it was twins. We, we called to tell her that we were going to have twins as a joke. <laughs> we, we, in fact, did not at that point know. We knew we were pregnant, um, and we, we called to say, oh, it's twins, haha, ha, April Fool's. A week later, we called back and said, no, seriously, it's twins. Wow. We're not kidding. So, yeah, God got the last laugh on that one, didn't he? Um, but we had names picked out. We had little cute pink things everywhere because we were told girls. Madison and Morgan, we had everything prepared for little twin girls, 
and I went to an ultrasound, uh, just a routine checkup because it was twins. I had more frequent ultrasounds. And the doctor said, well, I have a couple pieces of information to give you. One, you're having contractions, and that's not appropriate at your, you're only 23, they, they honestly thought 23 weeks, and you shouldn't be having contractions. It's certainly not these. These are not just the Braxton Hicks. This is pretty severe, significant thing. We need to put you in the hospital to stop your contractions. Oh, and by the way, it's boys. I'm sorry, what? Come again? Wow. That was not what I was prepared for. And funny enough, being who I am and a little bit of codependency in me, I was immediately devastated because I knew my mother-in-law wanted a daughter and wanted a granddaughter. And so I was like, no, it's got to be girls. At least one of them. No. Send them back. I know. So I wasn't prepared for two boys right away. Um, So we shifted gears pretty quickly, though. But I went into the hospital. From your hospital bed. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I walked from the doctor's office across the parking lot and into the hospital (laughs) and got checked in and um but I went in with this complete attitude of it's totally okay it's no big deal they're gonna give me a little medicine I'll be here a couple days and then my life will just go on as normal and I'll have babies in September as planned this was in June and three days later they wheeled me into emergency c-section because my, um, I was preeclamptic and my blood pressure was so high they stopped showing me the numbers. They, they didn't feel it was in my best interest to see how high my blood pressure truly was. And it wasn't until after the babies were out and my blood pressure lowered that I realized how terrible I did feel because I'm like, la la la, in denial about it all. But I was probably days if not hours away from being in a coma that I may or may not have woken up from. So it was pretty serious. They really wanted the babies to stay longer, but it would have been at my expense if they had. We, we kind of compromised. I felt like my timeline said I was 25 weeks. The doctor said developmentally it was 23 weeks. We met in the middle and called it 24. I am a stats and statistics and a fact-based person. So I needed to know all the numbers involved with what did that mean? Uh, 24 weeks gestation uh, birth means a survival rate of 5%. So that was a number that I was I was faced with and I had to come to terms with. And then, you know, there's just all these aspects of being in the NICU that are so um, unusual and so foreign. And I had to kind of adjust to what that looked like. Um, it kind of was like walking into an alien spaceship that first time. I don't know how else to explain it. I felt like I'd been removed to another world because... They had uh, the Billy lights on them, which is to help with jaundice. And so here they are in this little dark, you know, this dark room with funny blue light on them. And they are so tiny and they look like they're tanned because of the jaundice. And it just was very weird. They're under little tents to keep their skin moist so they didn't literally shed their skin. It's very bizarre, very strange, um, surreal. And of course, I was medicated, so it was even more surreal for me kind of situation. That's got to be really difficult that you couldn't really touch them, I would imagine. No, could not touch them for the first, I think it was over a week, and a nurse asked, um, said something about had I touched them, and I looked at her with this crazy look in my eye, like, are you kidding me? 
because they just were so fragile. Everything about them, they didn't, I mean, they look like underdeveloped babies. They, you know, their ears had not actually freed themselves from their skull yet. The, the tissue of their ears was still adhered to their skull and like little puppies, their eyes hadn't opened um, because they were so few shut and just, you know, they didn't have fingerprints yet. It was just bizarre. And so I'm like, of course I haven't touched them. Their skin is like tissue paper. And she said, well, you can, you can touch their hand. It's okay. Or touch their foot. The skin is thicker there and it's safe. And so I could reach in and like the first time I put my finger on uh, Keaton, who was the big one at a pound six ounces, I put my finger in the palm of his hand and immediately that reflex and he grabbed my hand and he just held on. It was really cool. It was very cool. So even, even that tiny, that reflex was there to just hold on. At what point did you, at that 5%, did you think, I don't know what's going to happen, or... Oh, no, no. I, I had the full belief that we were going to beat the odds, and we were going to leave with two babies, and I had images of rocking them both in the chair in my living room, and watching them play tag through the house. Um, I was completely convinced that we were going to lose a child. That happens to other people. That doesn't happen to me. So I was really well versed in dealing in the, the economy of denial, <laughs> a skill set I developed much earlier in my life and just had clung to. So I, I, you know, everything that came at us, it was scary to hear what the doctor said or it was scary to hear what the nurse said, but it would be, but we'll be okay. But we'll get past that. The reality of their true uh, mortality did not hit me until they told me that Keaton had a lung infection. We were seeing the monitor numbers, you know, not be what they needed to be. The blood count numbers um, not be what they needed to be. His oxygen saturation wouldn't stay high enough. And again, we're to facts and numbers, things I know and um, or was quickly learning. And, and it kind of got a little scary. I'm like, okay, he's got an infection, but you can treat it, right? Well, we're going to treat it but we don't know if we caught it in time. They actually started treating both boys, even though only Keaton showed uh, signs of the infection. They went ahead and started treating Caden as well. And it was just a couple of days later that it was the first time we got to hold Keaton, but it was because he was dying. And How many days in are we now? 27. On the 27th day. And um, to sit there and watch my husband hold my child as all of the numbers tick down, it's a, it's a really tough thing to experience. There was a lot of beauty and grace even in his death though. You know, that was in 2005, so it's been 12 years for me and it's still as hard to, to really dwell in that place, but um, we had amazing nurses and doctors and to know that we were not alone in that, that they grieved with us even after it had only been three, four weeks, they were family. And that made a huge difference in how that, that whole process went. But it really kicked something alive in me that I was so fiercely committed to seeing Caden come home. But I became very fearful of everything then. Every alarm, every report that didn't have something positive, oh my God, 
he could die. I've seen my son die. I know that's a real possibility now. It was very hard to recognize that reality, but once it was there, it was all I could see. And somewhere in here with a toddler and all of this at the hospital, you decide you need to go back to school. Yeah, that was brilliant. So Kaden, excuse me, Keaton died on uh, in July, early July. And I literally went to the school two days before classes started and signed up. So middle of August, a month later, like I'm going to go to school. And Don't, you're oh going to get Caden home. Yes. And I think that was really what uh, motivated me was I'm already learning so much about the NICU and about caring for these little babies because I have them and I have to, that I might as well put this skill set to use to make some money too, right? Yeah, that's a great idea. So I'll just be a nurse. So that was how I entered school. And Someone had, along the way, just some random person, I think, honestly, it wasn't a personal friend or anything, had mentioned a a school that was down the street from where I lived, and it was a convenient location, and had great reports about the school, and I literally knew nothing about the colleges in Oklahoma. So I went and I signed up, unbeknownst to me, at a private institution that cost um, a hefty amount, and so, of course, I had student loan debt from, you know, the first semester, and clearly not making great decisions at this point in my life. I was a little overwhelmed by my situation and just felt like I needed to move and be in motion. And so that was what I I did, but it's, ironically, it was a Christian college, but I was really struggling with faith at that time. I did not feel that um, there was a God, or if there was, I wasn't sure I wanted a relationship with him. I'd really been on this, this belief struggle for several years already, I had just enough of residual faith, if you will, from my childhood of being raised as a Christian to think, well, it just felt natural to think there was a God. I had to fight against the idea of there being a God. Um, I had to make myself not believe, if that makes sense. That The residual was there enough that I would still question and reach out to like our pastor in Fort Smith that I had um, gone to church with Mason and his family and to ask questions and try to get some understanding of why these things were happening. And so ironic that I would end up in a Christian college where I was forced to learn a little bit more about faith and the Bible. And um, because you're going to go to that school, you have to take, you know, Bible class and this, that, and the other. So I started to, to, to at least question more than I had over the last previous years. One phone call in particular stood out for me. It was a major turning point in my story when it was probably around the time I started school or shortly thereafter that I called Ed um, at Community Bible because we had lost Keaton and then Caden had, we had discovered he had broken bones, like several. He was incredibly fragile. And, you know, here he is three, four months old and changing his diaper broke both his legs literally and uh, so they had sent off for a a test that was for osteogenesis imperfecta which is a brittle bone disease um, to see if he had this genetic disease on top of being a premature twin Mm -hmm. Um, what are the odds kind of thing 
But if he had that, he really had a very short life expectancy um, because of the way it would impact his already fragile body. And I could not accept that God would give me these boys only to take them both away. What kind of God would do that? That's just evil. That's cruel. God wouldn't do that. Not any God I want a part of. So I called it, and I that's the question I asked Ed him. Ed is Ed Saucier at Community Bible Enforcement. Right. Yes. Okay. So called him and said, tell me, how is this fair? What's the story here? How can this be the case that we would have them just to lose them both and like this? And the only answer he gave me was people get sick, people that people die. God doesn't do it to us, but he can help us through it. And that sentence, that line just stuck with me. And it's, you know, here I am 12 years later, and it's still as if he said it to me yesterday. People get sick. People die. It's just something that happens. God isn't sitting up there smiting me and teaching me a lesson through these, these painful acts. Broken, fallen humanity has broken, fallen genetics, and we are fragile beings in and of ourselves. But he can help us through these tough times. So I, I hung up with that phone call slightly more confused than when I made it. And uh, I really had to stew on that for a while and really sit with it for a while. But I, uh, I quickly learned that while the college that I was in was fantastic and great instructors, I could not afford to continue that nonsense and found a public <laughs> institution to further my career of uh, a nursing degree. And so I switched to a different school. Uh, for the next few semesters. So you've lost one infant son, the other's battling for his life, you're in school, and you keep thinking, I've hit the low spot, right? Yeah, that felt like every week was the new low spot. And then it got a little lower, and then it'd get a little higher, and then we'd feel like we were kind of riding a, a wave for a little bit. The real kicker was you get the sense that if we just get him home, everything will be okay. Then we're out of the woods. And so it was always this push for getting him home, getting him home, getting him home. Okay, in retrospect, stay where the professionals are. They can really take care of all the emergency stuff. Sounds like a better plan. But when you've watched other children come and go from the hospital month after month after month, you kind of just want to be one of them. And we... I would not go a single day without being at the hospital, at least for part of the time. And so we came home to Fort Smith to visit family for Thanksgiving, but literally drove down one day, spent the night, and drove back the next so that I could be at the hospital again. You know, So we drove down Thanksgiving Day, came back Friday, and on the way, my phone had died and I didn't have a charger. I get home to, this was you know back when we still had home phones, to a message on my answering machine that was my mother-in-law completely freaking out, telling me I needed to get to the hospital right away. And of course that causes me to panic. But the next line was Caden's breathing. And I'm like, well, of course Caden's breathing. He always breathes. And then the rest of the message was on his own. And that I just tore out of the house. Thank goodness there were no police on that road that day because I broke every law getting there in record time um, to see my son finally have a voice. I had not heard a peep from him 
since the day he was born. So how many weeks is he now? This was five months. So he was born. We heard him cry. They intubated. And when you're intubated, you don't have sound. You have silent cries, which is the most excruciating thing to see somebody cry and not be able to hear it. There's something very profoundly disturbing in that. Um, And it hadn't occurred to me that it would be different when I walked in the room and I heard a baby cry and I realized it was mine. And it was more because he was sort of panicked by this new sensation. Um, But he was breathing. Now we had to blow some air up in his face to help keep the the airways, you know, positive air pressure. But he was doing it. And so we had this new turning point, and it really felt like there was some light at the end of the tunnel. And God bless those nurses and doctors. They worked really hard to help him so that a month later on December 24th, he was able to come home. So on Christmas Eve, whole family together. Yes. He came home in a Christmas outfit. We put him in a Santa suit. He fit in a stocking. I have a picture of him in a stocking. It's the cutest thing. So he came home as our tiny little Santa. Jacob, who is now almost four years old, dressed as an elf. And it was really funny to have this giant elf holding a tiny Santa. But it was it was the best Christmas present. It was all we wanted for our Christmas was to have our whole family at home. And so, of course, you know, that's the end, right? We're good. Check us out. Mark that box. We're finished. Everything's fine. Oh, good, because now we've gotten to the light, right? Yeah. No. 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 Then the alarms go off in the middle of the night, and you don't know what it is, because there's no monitor to tell you what that means anymore, and you have to figure it out. And um, his oxygen saturation will drop, and you have to rush to the hospital because he's not getting enough air with just a nasal cannula. Or... He's not eating, or every time he eats, he chokes, or he gets sick. And about the third or fourth round of infection, because he couldn't swallow properly, we decided it was time for a feeding tube. So April the following year, he um, has a a G-tube inserted. A little Mickey button is what it's called, but it's a little feeding tube that's in the side of his belly. And that man, now we, we are we are cooking with Crisco, so to speak, man. The boy can eat. We can just pump food in him, and he just gets bigger and fatter. And um, But we had this crazy balancing act between um, feeding him to, so he would grow um, and yet also him taking prednisone to protect his lungs, which causes to stunt your growth and get nice and plump and fat. So I had a short, fat little dude for quite a long time. And then we learned that the prednisone also causes problems with the teeth. So his little poor little teeth were all green as they started coming in. But I don't care. He's home. He's good. He's growing. And we kind of tripped along with, you know, the occasional trip to the doctor and the hospital. But overall, upward progress for about a year. And that's what that looked like. And it was probably, oh goodness, about... October of 2006, so he is, you know, just over a year old, almost uh, about a year and four months, thereabouts, he started to be able to pull himself up and holding on to um, the couch or the table and be able to stand um, and hold his weight, even though he had little bow legs from where they'd broken. 
he started babbling and finding a voice and being able to talk. And his very first word was Bubba. He knew his brother. And he said ball, because he loved to play ball. He would try to catch and roll it back. And so when he was learning and developing at the pace that a child should, just set it back six months because of the NICU experience. They basically say, start from the day you come home, it's like a newborn. And he was, he was just over six pounds when he came home. So it was like a newborn when he came home. So we just kind of minus the six months, he was, he was about on track. And that was really a surprise. I remember one interaction with the neurologist who was, from everything I'd heard, one of the best in the country. He was asked to consult on our case and he had given a prognosis of Caden having severe mental disability and never being able to even live at home that he would need to be institutionalized. And me in my first year psychology class did not agree with this. I clearly knew better and I forced an interaction with that doctor. Little old me who didn't like confrontation was learning to be assertive uh, for the sake of my children. And I did, I had a toe-to-toe yelling match with a doctor of apparently renowned abilities and explaining why I thought my son's uh, brain would be able to develop around the damaged areas that he was seeing and that he would be just fine. And it was a pretty vindicating cool moment when we went to visit that same doctor and I was ready to fight and argue again. And when he saw Caden sitting up and smiling and reactive and responsive, he said, I was wrong. You're right. He's going to be fine. It was really cool. And uh, so, again, we had all these indications and signs of light and hope and everything's going to be fine. We're going to be okay. Yeah, we lost Keaton, but we're going to be okay because Keaton was diagnosed with that infection and they treated Caden early. This brother saved his other brother, and that was a really cool part of the story, too, for us to say, you know, it, it was really awful that we had to lose Keaton, but because of that, we were able to save Caden. And so just that whole um, story just kept unfolding, and we kept seeing these moments and areas of progress. And we got through another Christmas, and that was you know fantastic. We now have two under our belt with him. And we round the corner into January, and he got sick, but that's not unusual. He got sick frequently very compromised immune system. So we went to the doctor and had him checked for RSV and flu and all of the usual culprits in the winter and all of his tests came back negative. Just And it wasn't our regular doctor. It was a different doctor our doctor was out and that always bothered me. But we've got to take the word of the doctor, move forward. A week later, he was not better. He was actually substantially worse and we had to go to the emergency room and they... They tried all the breathing treatment things that usually would work, and it wasn't enough, and they told me they had to reintubate, and man, was that a trigger. I was so terrified of putting him back on that tube because would we ever get him back off? One of the things about intubation is that the lungs get really comfortable not having to work at full power, and so they sort of go into vacation mode and don't do the work, but the longer you're on a vent, the more damage done to the lungs. So. It was a terrifying prospect to put him back on a vent, but the ER doctor finally got in my face and said, if I don't do this, he will die. 
you just go right ahead then, put him on the vent. Um, and so here we are back in the hospital on a vent, which means long-term stay. Uh, back to a PICU instead of NICU, so pediatric intensive care unit. And we settle into that journey. And about two weeks in, I realized I was pregnant again because that's what I need while I'm still going to college. And having a child in the hospital and another child in uh, kindergarten, I need to be pregnant with yet another child. <laughs> so, um, but I couldn't tell anybody. I couldn't tell anybody I was pregnant because we were too focused on Caden, and I couldn't, I couldn't split attention like that. Um, so I just kind of kept it a secret for a while, and uh, we went from January and on into March, and we were still in the hospital, and we started to um, feel like maybe there was some progress. He had, you know, typical when you're in the hospital, you get sick, <laughs> you get over one thing only to catch another. We finally got him well and talked to a doctor, and he sat down with me about uh, two in the afternoon to tell me that we needed to consider taking him home on a ventilator, that we would have to probably transfer him to a home unit, and he would probably be on a vent for several months, um, possibly years, um, because of the damage done to his lungs, and that we just needed to kind of embrace that idea and start, you know, adapting to that idea. I'm like, okay. It's not ideal, but he's going home. We'll be fine. There's that word again. So I went to class, and uh, middle of my lab, I get a call that says, really, you're not doing so hot. You might want to come on up here. Real casual, like, okay. I finish up class and head home to uh, grab a bite before I go for my vigil at the hospital for several hours. And on my way to the house, I got it. no, you really need to come now call. So I called my friend who lived around the corner from us and uh, she was absolutely one of the most beautiful angels in my life. It was late and I called her and I said, I need you now. And she said, I'm on my way. There was never a question as to what do you need? How long is it gonna take? She was at my door when I got there. She scooped up Jacob and took him home. And my husband and I went to the hospital and we'd already received two more phone calls in the time that it took to get there, which is about 10 minutes um, from the time of one call to the to the to us walking in the door. We'd already gotten two more calls. And we walked into the room to see the number on the vent, uh, on the uh, monitor. By now, I've learned to read monitors very, very well. And the first number you look to is oxygen saturation and his was sitting at 72. And, you know, obviously we want 100% saturation. That's what the brain needs. It's what the lungs need. You, you do okay at 90, 95, that's all right. You can even survive for a while at 80 something. But in the 70s, you start to think about how much damage is, is happening to the brain. And so the first thing I asked was how long has it been there? And they said, well, we just got it back up to 72 it's been 15 minutes and I'm I'm remembering everything I've ever read about that and realizing my son's brain is damaged even if he survives this his brain is no longer what it used to be and then the numbers kept dropping despite everything they threw at him medicine and treatments and 
increased oxygen and change of vent type um, and it just kept dropping and then it sat in the 50s for well over an hour and then it just kept ticking down it was the slowest countdown ever and by it was almost midnight Mason and I had to make a decision on what we wanted to do did we want to try to force his body to survive despite what we knew which was that his brain had already died. It was already too starved of oxygen to be capable of doing what a brain is supposed to do. Or did we want to just let him go? And we made the decision to not try to keep our son alive on machines. And we asked him to turn off the vent. And this time I held him as the numbers ticked down and we watched and it was 11.58. And uh, he was gone. And it was hard to reconcile that he was gone before we even unplugged the vent. But you remember the funniest thing was that I was focused on he needed a haircut. <laughs> he had laid in a hospital bed for six weeks and he had these long curls on the back of his head and I'm like, he needs a haircut. Somebody get me some scissors. I was insistent he would have a haircut before I left that room. And you know, there's some stuff that, that transpired after his death before we left that um, I still struggle with, that I have to come to terms with but in an effort to be a better person and a better version of myself, it's not a part of the story that I should want to share right now because of, of my perspective on it. But we chose to bury both of the boys here in Fort Smith so that, because eventually we knew that's where we would end up and we wanted them close. So we, uh, we came back for the funeral and I remember feeling very disconnected from myself and now as a counselor I recognize disassociation but it's a very surreal feeling and just feeling like I wasn't even in my own body as I went through the motions of his funeral but there I was still in college somehow going through those steps to become a counselor well I guess technically I was still thinking nursing at that point I wasn't in anatomy class but I had decided before that part of my story was to offer hope. Well, my hope just died. What am I going to offer a parent now? Great. Maybe you too can stand where I stand with a, next to the grave of a child. No, I couldn't, I couldn't do that. So that's when I decided I had to shift gears and had to reconsider what kind of career I wanted. And by the end of that semester, from March to May, I decided counseling. I wanted to be able to give people hope in a different way. And oh, by the way, you're still pregnant. Yeah, that was God at work. Even though I wasn't really acknowledging his existence, and I was pretty mad if, on the rare occasions that I did think about him, that was the only thing that kept me healthy and even remotely caring about myself. I knew I had another baby to take care of. Oh, and by the way, the due date was two days off of what the boys' due date had been. So I was pregnant at the same phase at the same time. So when June rolled around, I knew I was 24 weeks on their birthday on June 13th. I'm, you know, I'm at that same point. She's the same size. I knew what she looked like. It's going to be terrifying. It was 
horrifying. It was one of the toughest aspects of that to me was that I felt like any day now is going to happen again. And so every day past June 13th was just like, okay, we can do this. Okay, that's one more percent chance of survival. You know, okay, now we're 25 weeks. Now we're 28 weeks. 28 weeks. Oh, we've jumped to 50% survival rate. 32 weeks. Now it's at 95. And I just knew every percentage of every week what the percentage of survival was. And uh, God love her. She decided, she decided to come in with a, with a grand entrance on September 11th of 2007. So are we now pointed toward the light and the reboot? Or did is there more? Oh, no. I was so miserable. <laughs> I went through the motions for my son and now my daughter, but I did not feel like I could hold a thought in my head. I felt so lost, and I felt very alone in all of this. And again, the going to college thing was really... I mean, I wasn't in any classes that were aimed at my degree yet. It was still very first two years basic stuff. And so I didn't have this real sense of commitment or connection to uh, the degree plan. It was just, I've got to keep going because I can't afford to stop and the loans come due. Um, and then a friend told me about a blog. And I found this blog. And for the life of me, I know it was named after the baby that this woman had lost, but I can't remember it off the top of my head. But I started reading this blog and... I started to not feel quite so alone because somebody else was telling the story of the loss of their child. And it started to feel like, okay, maybe if she can survive this, so can I. And so I started to get the sense that maybe I was going to be okay. And she had on her blog a post about, about an exercise that she had done. She had taken this picture that she bought and she broke it on purpose and then she sat down and put it back together piece by piece, day after day, gluing it together. And her purpose behind it, the story behind it that she explained in the blog, was that she was basically putting herself back together piece by piece. And then all those broken places, all those cracks, were where life had, had affected her, were the cracks that we all have in our life. Um, but as Jesus pours into that vessel, there's, it's inevitable that it will pour out through those cracks. There's no way you can hold it all in in a broken vessel. But that meant if she was a vessel, Jesus would flow through her to others. And I had really started revisiting this whole God thing. We moved back to Fort Smith at uh, the end of 2007, and I started going to Al-Anon for reasons that have nothing to do with the particular aspect of the story at the moment. And... I had found that I really was missing this whole God thing, and I needed that. And so a combination of this blog post story and revisiting the, the 12 steps or learning about the 12 steps and finding out there's a step three that requires a relationship with God, I came to, came to a point of deciding to give my life over to Christ. And I prayed for, for salvation and, and chose to become a follower really for the first time in my life. I'd been raised in church, but never made that commitment. And somebody had given me the most beautiful little teapot, and I shattered that thing. I took it out in the garage, and I threw it onto the concrete, and then spent the next 20 minutes trying to find every last piece I could find. 
And then I spent the next two months piecing it back together at my dining room table. And I would cry, and I would laugh, and I would cry a whole lot more, and I would just piece by piece put that back together. And when it was finished, not only did it have all these cracks in it where you know, the pieces didn't quite line up, the spot that had hit the concrete was a big quarter-sized hole. And that part had turned to dust when it hit, so there was no piecing it back together. And I truly believe that this is when God spoke to me and started giving me a sense of what it was going to be for me to be a counselor and why this was going to be important for me. And I've since kind of given this better better language as I've revisited this in my own thoughts and prayers that that point of impact, where the biggest hole is, where the biggest life impact is, that's where God out the most for me yeah there's all these other cracks there's all these other broken places where I can work where I can where God can work through me and he can flow through me to help other people but it isn't my point of impact and in this case the birth and death of my boys that God can flow the most freely and you know the biggest quantity can flow out and as he flows over those ragged jagged edges it smooths down and so it gets easier. And I can sit here and retell that story in great detail and only have a few spots where I catch instead of completely breaking down because he continues to heal me, in part because I do share that story so often and I do allow myself to revisit that pain so that I can sit with it with other people. Um, and so now as a counselor, I have people come in that have stories similar to mine who've lost children or who have suffered extreme grief and I know that pain and can sit and hold space for them and honor their loss because God has worked through me in that point of impact. Let's go back to uh, Pastor Ed, the guy who cleared things up for you by saying it happens. That sounds to some perhaps kind of cold and callous, Mm -hmm. but I know this man of whom you speak, and I understand as harsh as that sounds that his actions demonstrate love. Oh, absolutely. And because he's somebody I know well, and I know his story and his family's story. And it's not my story to share, but he spoke of his own experiences and how that same concept applied in his life. So it wasn't just that he was kind of brushing me off with a, eh, things happen. It was a very heartfelt, serious belief that he personally has experienced and held and, um, 100% buys into that people get sick and people die and bad things happen as a result of being broken fallen people in a broken fallen world so in his not dismissing your pain Mm -hmm. in his embracing it Mm -hmm. not just in that phone call but with his relationship with your family right 
now that going in and out of that broken vessel now becomes this space as a counselor where you're able to assist grieving mothers without inserting yourself but by saying yeah me too yes it's a very powerful thing to sit and hear someone's story and to have someone say this is the first time I've ever admitted this or the first time I've ever said this out loud and know that you're really kind of sitting amongst sacred space it's an honor and a privilege to be able to do that with somebody and while I'm not labeled as a Christian counselor, knowing that I couldn't do that but for the grace of God and knowing that I couldn't counsel a grieving mother had I not been counseled as a grieving, grieving mother. You know, it's there's something just really special and unique about that. It just it provides me an opportunity that I wouldn't have had otherwise. On this side of your reboots, life is perfect? <laughs> Far cry. I have since added not just Sophie to the family, but also Landon. That was seven years ago. And so now, again, the mother of three. It's always a fun time trying to explain to people that I've had five children, four pregnancies, but have three living children. I don't really always want to get into that. <laughs> it's complicated. But the story of Job really strikes me many times because all of the things that God allowed to be taken from Job, he then restored. I see where he's done that and then some in my own life. The things that our human frailty and faulty genes and poor choices took away from my life or nearly took away from my life, God has restored and redeemed my marriage. You know, again, back to numbers, if we looked at the statistics on a couple that had addiction in the family and premature births and NICU and loss of a child, loss of two children. Statistically, my husband and I have less than a percentage chance of being married right now. And we are now 14 years married. So clearly there is more at work there than the odds. And we truly know and recognize that that's, you know, the power that God has to restore a marriage and to um, provide us not only with children. And then I ever think about my children as replacements of the boys. They're not. And I think that's something that many people probably struggle with in the story of Job. I certainly did before my own personal experiences that, yeah, God gave him more children, but it's not the same. Nope, it's not. But it's okay. It's not replacement. It's just a new area for the heart to to pour out. It doesn't take away the grief that I have for my children that died, but it gives me something. It gives me new children to to love and to to connect to and to raise. And that in itself is its own gift. Um, he didn't leave me only with the hurt. And. Uh, that's a pretty profound gift that he allows me to move on to have the career that I have and the family that I have um, and the marriage that I have and the friends that I have. This whole experience changed how I interact with people. It, it's, it was a definitely for me a necessary step to finding my faith. So yeah, life's far from perfect though. We, we have our moments. I went through a, a pretty rough season as a mother 
of not doing a good job of that, of being angry and hurting and taking that out on my kids. I was the yelling mom. I've more than once seen looks of fear in my children's eyes, even though I never raised a hand against them. My voice made them believe that I would. And I've had to come to terms with that. It was a part of who I was, that I lashed out at them when it wasn't something that they deserved. And I've had to make adjustments. And I've had to work hard to change my behaviors and my thoughts. That's all I've got control over, right? My thoughts, my feelings, and and my actions. And so those are the things that I work on to try to improve. And while it's not perfect, I have a really, really good life. And I'm a really fortunate person that I've been able to recognize the gifts that God has given me. Someone listening is going to be inspired by your story. I am every time I hear it. Thanks. And they want to know... What do I do next? I'm tired of stewing in this mess. What do I do now? As a counselor, as someone who's been there, all of those hats together, what does that listener do next? So there's a few things that I find very important or powerful and useful. One is if you can find a grief support group we were very fortunate to find the, the kids place in Oklahoma City that was for families that had lost a loved one. It was specifically for the kids, but they tricked you into coming as a parent and had to stay. So it really was for the whole family. They just marketed well to make sure people showed up. So grief support groups of people who also have lost loved ones, counseling, actual therapy, with a counselor, somebody who is not involved in your story. It's priceless, the therapy that I've received and I've, I've had to help me deal with my issues and from my childhood, from, for dealing with my grief, and all of those things has been instrumental in helping me to heal and become who I am. So definitely professional help is a, is a great option. And then honestly, one of the best is just finding something like Celebrate Recovery where you can learn and work 12-step program I started mine with Al-Anon because I, I qualified for having addiction in my family. But what's great about Celebrate Recovery is that it isn't just about chemical addiction. It's also about anybody with any hurt, any habit, any hang-up, and helping them find a new way to find peace and joy in their life. And it's wonderful because you will find somebody else who has experienced something similar to you. Um, when you when you start in on this program, it it helps you to not feel alone. It helps you to be able to tell your story without anybody trying to fix you. Just being able to say what happened and have somebody to say thank you for sharing is more powerful than I could put into words. It's a pretty profound gift that is given inside of those groups. And being able to hear lessons on what forgiveness looks like, whether that's forgiveness of somebody else or forgiveness of yourself, to be able to look at how God's role in your life affects the things that happen um, and how you can use that to better your own situation. There's nothing like it. So those are the things that I suggest. Support groups that are related to your, your struggle, support groups that are related to being a human being that is broken. I find great value in being in church and in learning the Bible more thoroughly and in uh, counseling. 
But wait, I'd rather just read a book and be fixed. I don't want to have to talk to people. Good luck with that. Let me know how it works out for you because I am truly an introvert and would rather just do it myself. I am the self-checker, you know, like I'll take my entire full load of groceries that's like to the brim and I'll still do self-checkout because it it's a way to avoid a human interaction, <laughs> which isn't the best quality about me sometimes, but um, it can't, you just can't do it alone. We are not as human beings designed to live this life alone. We are social creatures and we are meant to be in relationship with one another. And the great joy is that you can do that slowly and gently and ease into it like I did so that the anxiety doesn't become overwhelming. Um, but it's essential. It's essential to have people in, in your life that accept and love you right where you are, brokenness and all. So says the professional counselor who <laughs> has been broken. Thanks, Ada. Thank you. We are grateful for Ada's willingness to revisit the sorrow in her life in such great detail. I've known Ada for several years now and heard her story many times, but never in such great detail. Following the interview, she told me that she did so in an effort to bring hope to even just one mother or father grieving the loss of a child. I never met Keaton or Caden, and still... I find such great meaning in their lives through Ada and the entire Floyd family. I'm Tracy Winchell. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time. We'd love to hear your reboot story privately on our StoryWorks blog or as a guest on an upcoming podcast. And we appreciate your feedback either in the iTunes store or by way of email. Drop us a line, reboots at winchellstoryworks.com or on our website, winchellstoryworks.com